recorded live, Union Inn, Washington, D.C., 1112, 3rd Street, Northeast. We are Steps to Nomagayudet Metro. Nice, brisk walk to Union Station. And a leisurely jaw to the Capitol, Capitol Hill. I am the illustrious Innkeeper Freddy, host extraordinaire. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Guestbook Podcast. I love this. Guestbook Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Shout out to Diamondback, Luke Cage. We're going to miss you on Netflix. No Disney bought all the Marvel stuff, so they didn't put no more money in it. But I appreciated hearing this. There's a young gentleman that when I was at the Line Hotel, I would see him working on his uh, laptop a lot on one of those communal tables that they have out there. Shout to Line, shout to EBY, shout to Jack over at Full Service Radio. Shout to all my peoples that work in the uh, hotel. And I would continually run into this guy from parties to events and everything. And I said, yo, man, I got to get you on. And here he is. Kendrick Jackson. How you doing? What's going on, man? Thanks for having me here. It's a long time coming. Uh, yeah, definitely a long time coming. Yeah, man, it's cool. So what were we just listening to? Um, who was that? The Delphonics. Um, Stop, look, and uh, you have found love. I'm a huge Delphonics fan. My parents are one of those black parents that um, love collecting music. They had all types of stuff, and then I wanted up getting into those genres. That bass line, y- y'all felt it, and it was used as the the intro for Diamondback from uh, Luke Cage. Yes, it was. Luke Cage's long-lost psychopathic brother. I still need to finish Luke Cage. I watched like the first season and then the first half of the second season. I forgot what happened. I just stopped watching. I think the weekend ended. <laughs> I think that's what happened. Like, I like that. Yeah, like the weekend ended. I was like, it I happens sometimes like that. Yeah, I was like, I'll catch you later. <laughs> I'm like that with billions right now. There's a couple of shows that I need to finish. You have uh, had quite a traveling journey in mm-hmm. your life. Yeah. Born in D.C. Right. Then moved on over to PG County. Right. Shout out to Adelphi and Langley Park McCormick. And shout to uh, University of Maryland right over there, too. Yeah. Yeah, we weren't far. We were right down the street from UMD. Um, crazy. And I spent a lot of time, like, my brothers and I, we snuck into the practice facility at Coldfield House to, to ball up and hoop and all of that. So, yeah, that was good times. It was crazy. Then you moved out west. Yep. L.A. Where? Uh, Westwood, where it's all good. And that was interesting. First went to a private Catholic school right down the street called St. Timothy's on Pico, Beverly Glen. Where is Westwood in relation to the other neighborhoods that have somewhat of a name to them, like, say, right. a Beverly Hills or a Bel Right, Air. right. First of all, you have to look at L.A. as, like, West L.A. and everything else, right? So you have, <laughs> I mean, because you have South Central, you've got these other places, but, like, West L.A. is mad racist because they're, like, it's west of La Brea. And north of Figueroa, I think, is how that works. And that gives you Hollywood. Then it gets you, uh, you get into Beverly Hills. And then right next to Beverly Hills is Westwood. And that's where UCLA is. And then you get into Santa Monica, Venice, 
And then a little bit north of Santa Monica is this uh, town called the Palisades, where I was bused into go to school from Westwood uh, with a bunch of different kids, which was cool because um, they really just allowed you in based on your behavior. So like your grades could have been not too crazy. You know, your reading level could have been, but like not enough kids were going to school in Brentwood and the Palisades at that point anymore. At that point, those home prices were in the, you know, tens of millions. Everybody who lived there could afford to send their kid to the local private school. So literally the school system had to create these public charter systems, which were still ran by the school system. It wasn't a private company. They just bust students in from different parts of the city. So whether it was South Central, whether it was West L.A., whether it was, you know, Inglewood, Crenshaw, Baldwin Hills, they all were allowed to come there. And it was cool because you're in this really sweet neighborhood. We had cool kids who went to school there, too. But outside of that, it was really a space where we could motivate ourselves to just do better, even though we knew where we came from wasn't this, you know, glitz and glamorous world. So it, it was interesting just seeing the the dynamics of going from, you know, less and Westwood wasn't bad, but just really bringing it home. And so I really did enjoy my time in L.A., but we eventually moved back to D.C. Shout to Deborah Phillips, episode number 14. She lives in the Pacific Palisades. Oh, really? Yeah, she's nice. actually a, a fellow innkeeper like myself. I was just about to say, can I stay with her when I go? Right, right? dude. Her place is really nice, man. She actually had um, Mumford and Sons. Oh, wow. Stayed at her place. When they won the Grammy of the Year. Oh, wow. Crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, if you haven't listened to episode 14, go back and listen to that. I'm going to listen to that. So, was this kind of like a school where there's a whole bunch of people bust in? Right. But did the kids who actually lived in that neighborhood go to this school as well? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. I had a couple of friends. So, prior to coming to high school... Uh, my boy Joseph and I were really into video games and we winded up creating a public access TV station show called the Code Breakers, where we would just get video games before they came out from like the local game developers that like were in Santa Monica or Venice or wherever. And then we would go into game facts in some cases and use their cheat codes and tell people how to like beat the game. And we just did that because of, there's a huge electronic entertainment festival for video games in L.A. every year, E3. And it was just a space for us to get ourselves out there. So by the time we went to Pali in uh, ninth grade, kids already knew us. They were like, went to right, where? Palisades High School. OK, so every it's Pali for short. Go Dolphins. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of kids were like, yeah, we knew you had your own TV show. Why don't you kick it with us? And then I also had some friends from middle school who lived up there like there's this one kid named Tommy Sobel he has a company called Brick where it's all about unplugging and you know don't have your phone have intentional experiences with human beings um his father is a Grammy or I'm sorry Oscar award-winning uh, composer and he lived literally right above the school and what was cool is the school offered like arts and it also offered film and media production so we shot our, our first film there it was called a pickled fancy um, about a dude trying to buy a pickle. It sounds crazy. But what I got from it was his dad took us down to the studio on Fox, the Fox studio, and edited the audio. That was the liveest stuff ever. Were you editing on the same software that you were using Absolutely. in your house? You were just on like no. a super 11,000 inch screen. Bruh. And he composed the music. It was like originally composed music, right? Yeah. 
I, I thought we were going to win best soundtrack. We didn't win. Uh, I was blown. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but shout out to Curtis Sobel uh, and and Tommy Sobel uh, doing his thing. Check out his product, Brick, and if you're out in LA, experience that because it's important to unplug. I think was that the kind of genesis to get you started down this coding path? I don't know what the proper terminology. Yeah, is. so you know you learn a little C plus plus when you're trying to do video games. We were thinking about going to DigiPen University. Where's that? It's in like Seattle or something like that. DigiPen. DigiPen. Okay. Uh, so it's like a a coding school. So it was like the precursor to like a general assembly or these boot camp, these coding boot camps. But it was really designed for you to go there, and then once you graduate, you would find a job in the the video game industry. Oh, so it was like a feeder. Yeah. It's kind of like okay, would it be closer to a trade school or would it be closer to an associate's college, like where you get an associate's degree? I don't even know. I don't even know if it's still like around anymore. But like, I I think they weren't even doing. I feel like with that type of work, it's all uh, portfolio based. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, what can you do after you've gone here? Let me see the type of games that you have, uh, you know, have coded and what's your skill level and how how much do you really love this craft? Because a lot of the people that I know who were game developers, they didn't go to college to do it. You know, they have degrees and crazy stuff if they even have degrees. Was this degree known at the time or was it still? No, it was just like a a mythical place, you know, for us. And then I eventually found out, you know, it was real, but it was just sort of like, oh, you know, this is where I want to be. I love video games so much. And then out of nowhere, right when, you know, everything is starting to pop, things are moving well for me. My dad is like, hey, yeah, they told me to come back to D.C. to the headquarters. And I'm like, like this is when you're in high school. I'm in high school. I'm in like 10th grade, I think. But uh, but yeah, it was crazy. So they kicked me up in 10th grade and brought me back to D.C. And I was blown and not even D.C., Arlington, Virginia. Mm. And that was a whole culture shift. Yeah. Was there any tech stuff in school at the time? Technology didn't really come back until college. Um, So I went to WNL. It wasn't anything crazy besides I shot that film that I was able to leverage that to go to film school at VCU quickly realized that I didn't want to do film because it was a whole different culture shift. I'm used to the culture of like quick turnarounds of video, shoot it, edit it, post it, you know, or get it out there. And film, you know, we're taking a lot more time, but a lot more nuanced time that we did shouldn't have had to take. So I'm at college, I'm at VCU. My daughter's godfather is telling me about, you know, different things like uh, Objective C, um, because I know C plus plus, and then we start messing around making apps. So I wind up getting into media and sort of mobile development and website creation there. And I wind up, you know, just, you know, just saying effort and leaving and, you know, focusing on that full time because I just didn't have enough time to like really hone in on that. And, I, you know, I never really turned around since then. I um, wound up connecting with a media site that focused on technology here in the city. Um, they were called In the Capital at the time. And it was targeting millennials, really uh, being in a space that I was in. They said, you know, do millennials really care about innovation, tech and startup and city life? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Not only do they read it, they share it. And, you know, they help you go viral. This is the the audience that is, you know, Gen Xers don't make things go viral. It is millennials that are doing that. So we created it. Don't 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 poo poo on my Gen Xers. No, though. I'm not poo pooing on any. But I'm saying at the time, Gen Xers weren't as. Uh, they, I'm just, I'm yeah, just yeah, with yeah. You. and I don't. To be honest with you, you know, it's the the baby boomers that are the biggest shares, and they share a lot of fake news too. You know, to fast forward, when I was there, 
at DC, you know, I created this, um, this gathering called hackers, hustlers, designers. And, uh, it was based on the concept that Steve jobs had of saying, you know, here's what you need to create a great tech startup. You need a good, you know, hacker who can build out the product, a designer who can, you know, make it look great and, you know, work for the user. And then you need a hustler to go out there and sell it. Ah, and connectors, mavens, and salesmen. Right, right, exactly. So, like, marketing people meet designers, meet developers. And these are all different parts of the brain that are talking to each other. And what was amazing about it is it's still the same. We don't do it anymore. But these are the same groups of people that are looking for each other. There's a great designer who has an idea he needs a developer for. The developer's like, I'm looking for a designer. And they're both looking for somebody who has marketing and business development acumen to be able to go out there and sell it. So we would host these things. We would write an article to promote it. Here are the 10 people that you should grab a beer with at the next Hackers Hustlers Designers. Those 10 people automatically had to show up, right? They were now like, well, I RSVP'd, but now that y'all wrote an article about your boy, I gotta go. And you know that was cool to help build our relationships. I started to wanna connect more of this community with another community that was near and dear to my heart where I lived and, you know, Ward 7, 8 and just people of color. Cause I'm like, man, DC has so many jobs and so many opportunities, but yet there's a group of people who they don't even know that these opportunities are there. And I need to, you know, bring people over here so that they can be the ambassadors for themselves and they can see what's really good. And then they can bring people over. So, that's when I started to look at how policy was written for innovation and tech. And that's what really got me into merging these two worlds. Hence you being a civic innovator. Right. And then you'd said there's a social impact side to it too. Correct. So I'm trying to say this like, and not sound crazy. Um, I believe in nonprofits, right? Like I believe in the mission of any organization to do something good. But I also am like, why don't you want to make a profit? Why are you beholden to people who, in some cases, they'll come to your gala and they'll donate a lot of money in their personal lives. But uh, but in their professional lives, in some cases, they're causing the problems that you're looking to, to fight and they're putting 20 million dollars into that issue. And they're putting one million dollars into your issue to save face. And I'm a huge fan of being able to measure what your impact is in a community. Like, okay, cool. You came to my community. All right. What are you going to do? Well, five people were homeless. And, you know, after only spending, you know, a hundred dollars on them, I was able to not make them homeless. Okay, cool. That sounds really sustainable. Like I see the impact. They're not, not homeless anymore. So now where's the scalability model? How can we do this everywhere with the same target population in different cities? And if I don't see, impact sustainability or scalability in what you're trying to do in uh, disenfranchised communities you it sounds mad nonprofit to me versus like social entrepreneurs are like we are paid based on how well we impact this community and how well we can be measured on it and those are places where you can get paid through grants you can get paid through government contracts in some cases you can sue the government uh, because they've done wrongdoing to a certain community. So the the revenue in the end comes from the public sector. No, the, the revenue comes from the public or the private sector. So, for instance, uh, we talked about like Warby Parker. They buy a pair, you give a pair. There are parts of the country like D.C., I think for dental and eye care, 
we provide dental and eye care for, for students. That's just something because all children at a certain age get a certain access to health care. So I believe there's like programs that subsidize that. Is that Obamacare? No. I think that's been going on for a minute. But that's a DC thing, not a federal DC thing. DC had subsidized health care way before Obamacare. Yeah. Like all you need to do is prove you're a resident and you you can't afford to pay for health care, you won't get a bill. Um and you can get pretty decent surgery. So we don't have that issue. The issue that we have is a lot of people not really understanding what access they have. And you have a lot of black women not getting mammograms. Mm. Um, So we have a high cancer or breast cancer rate in the city. You know, you have people not understanding how to test the quality of their water. That's something you can do. So like you can literally say, all right, this is just off the top. Like I, I love freestyling business concepts. GW's like, man, we really need to pick up the amount of, you know, black women, you know, we're giving mammograms to and providing services to. Okay, cool. I have a private company that trains young men and women to talk to their elders in their community about, you know, how to, you know, go through and get a mammogram. And, you know, we'll charge you guys $50 a house or $100 a house. GW pays for that. That's a social impact because at the end of the day, by them not getting cancer, there's a lot of other associated costs to the city that come with, you know, being sick that we don't even know. She may not be able to work anymore. So now this you got to pay for medical leave, all this other stuff. So there's ways to be able to measure your impact on the city side and on the private side and still be socially impactful. Gotcha. So like, I don't want people to just only think that you have to go to government to be a social impact company. Okay. So after I left uh, in the Capitol, I wound up uh, opening up a a couple of pop-up coffee shops and menswear bars here in the city called State of Affairs, where you could just come and talk about clothes, coffee, cocktails, or the state of affairs going on around the world. This is like a, a total shift and everything. You didn't even know this. I didn't even mention this in the pre-thing. Really quickly, what we were trying to do is connect technology and also fix solve the retail problem in the city. Like in this city, you know, you know where to go to get trashed, wasted. You know where to go to get fed, um, but you don't really know where to shop. What we did was we found two locations that were had temporary leases, um, but had specific liquor license where um, one was called uh, one lounge. It was right uh, above the DuPont Circle North Metro. It's now called Mission. It's a Mexican restaurant. Okay. And the other one uh, was called Veracruz. It was above Duffy's across from the 930 Club. We would basically bring our stuff in. Um, We allowed you to try everything on. You could get fitted for a suit. You could test some amazing madcap coffee. You could peruse different brands that were not in the city but wanted to be in the city. You could try things on. You couldn't walk out of the store with anything, though. Um, Everything was for you to really experience. You purchase it online uh, at the store, and, you know, we ship it to you in a few days. Mm. Um, So that allowed us to help with inventory cost, um, and it also allowed us to really test out what worked and what didn't work. Once we get your size, it's cool. So the way we connect the technology is what we try to do is in, in custom clothing and, and bespoke clothing, usually it's three fittings. You have one fitting where you get measured and then another fitting where you try on a exterior look of the suit. Like you've probably seen these in commercials where it's like a bunch of threads all over the place. That's usually the second fitting. And then the third fitting is something that looks like, you know, something you could actually wear. And then they tighten it up a little bit here and there. That's extremely expensive process. That's why custom suits and bespoke suits are so expensive. Paying for their time. Absolutely. And the quality. What we did was we said, okay, let's let's skip to step two where we put them in a, you know, a frame 
that they, it's called a form actually and you know we can sort of get their measurements from there so that when the jacket comes back they only have really one actual fitting that they need to do and it will lower the the, the time that it takes for us so, to to do all of that we worked with these young brothers out of Howard University School of Engineering. Young guy named brothers, really cool dudes. They basically took an Xbox camera and were able to like sort of create this system where if you stood in front of the camera, it would be able to like measure your like exact measurements. Mm. So, you know, it allowed us to try to get it as close as possible, depending on how you like your suits. A lot of the young guys uh, like their suits to look like they're painted on them. You know, like like just extra tight. You know, they want that. That's a European look. And I'm like, I don't know what look it is, but like I can see your muscles. And that's not what a suit's supposed to do. It's supposed to breathe a little bit. You want to have a suit you can wear for years. Yeah. Last question before we get to the seven questions. Yeah, yeah. What was the last video that you produced, made, shot, whatever? I'm editing a video as we speak. It's pretty cool. So I'm working on a project right now called Launchpad that uh, brings in students from Hong Kong. We basically train them in web development, da uh, data science, user experience design, and they all bring those skills to an entrepreneurship project that they have to pitch at the end of the three weeks. And then coupled to that, we bring in uh, DC kids who have gone through like a Booz Island Hamilton. It's a big consulting firm sort of training. And they're also taking this class as well. And we'll take them to uh, where are we going? We're going to Twitter, Amazon, Facebook to do tours of their uh, offices. And then we're going to Georgetown, GW, Princeton, Columbia and uh, UPenn and a few others. And it's a three week where we do them in two cohorts over the summer. My partners in Hong Kong have the most edits notes that I've ever seen. They're trying to get it like perfect. Pitch perfect. And I'm, I'm not mad at that. The way we're doing this and the reason we have the students uh, from D.C. involved, they don't pay us. Mm -hmm. they, they come from the trenches here in the city. They've overcome a lot. They're also going to get to go to Hong Kong, too, to really have a full uh, cultural experience. Now, the thing with them is we're not charging them because after this cohort is done, we're going to use them as T.A.s for the next cohort. Does everyone that's in here already have a background in programming? No. So we send them two weeks of pre-work before they even show up into the United States. And actually, like right before I uh, turned off my phone, that was what we were talking about. Like uh, there's ways to get them here. Even if they don't do the pre-work, we can still get them ready to go. All right. Yeah. Something we definitely got to talk about. Yeah, man. Anytime. man. I, I love creating schools and doing cool stuff like that. Cool. You ready for the seven questions? Let's get it. What's no. it called, y'all? It's the questions. It's the questions, boy. It's the questions. It's the questions, yeah. The questions. Question number one, book to add to the library. Uh, 400 Years of White Trash. Uh, great book. Great book. Who wrote it? I forget the name of the young lady. It was written by a white woman. Just talks about how back in the 1600s, there were a bunch of European vagrants looking around the countryside can't arrest them for being vagrants so they put them on boats and they sent them here and they've sort of evolved into different groups and quote-unquote clans of people um in different parts of the country and you know some of them have names like hoosiers and things like that so you can sort of see the origins of where these people who are now in essence dominating you know politics and society and most mainstream america they were given you know a a, a, a raw deal in the beginning but the one caveat that they had the entire time was you are not a slave don't ever forget that and if you forget that you will be just like them and i feel like that has manifested over time into that 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 scared feeling 
because at one point they were making attempts to mix with uh, the blacks in this uh, community. They realized who the common enemy was. And now they are, I feel like the way the systems have been built, um, it, they've, they've forgotten that. And Nancy Eisenberg. Nancy Eisenberg, yeah, a white a, woman. It's a relatively recent book, too. Yeah. I want to say 2016, 2017. Yeah. And the subtitle is The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America. Yes. It's a good book. Definitely. Question number two, podcast to subscribe. Um, two, uh, I like the Spooks podcast. Those dudes are pretty interesting. Um, that's based off of a, of a book called The Spook Who Sat by the Door. And they are like real... Um, not Hoteptacon, but like they're definitely big on like government conspiracies and things that are affecting people of color. Um, and the other one is all the fly kids. They are out of um, uh, with full service radio, I believe. Or no, they're not there anymore. I think that I know they were there when I was there. Te- check those. All the fly kids. Got you. Which one um, would you recommend of the two? I like all the fly kids because I just personally like the guys who are um, there. Um, Geronimo is a very serious human being. I make an effort to always make Geronimo smile when I see him because uh, he's just too serious. I'm like, bro, like, <laughs> I'm serious. Um, so, yeah, no, I like them. And they both bring a really interesting perspective. They've interviewed some amazing people on uh, the head of the hip hop, the, the curator for the hip hop um, uh, exhibit over at this uh, African-American History Museum. They just interview a lot of cool people and I like them personally. So check them out. Cool. Number three, something you didn't know you needed till you got it. Um, you know, I would, I would have to say, uh, you know, real friendship, um, moving around a lot, you know, you, you don't really get a chance to really build those like long-term, you know, friends, you know, you pick them up, you lose them, you lose a kid in elementary school. You're not really going to talk to them. You lose them in middle school. You're not going to talk to them. Um, so, you know, really getting true friendship and having friendships now that have lasted, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, my partner in Hong Kong, uh, who I'm working with, you know, I've known him, you know, 15 years almost now. That's that's something that, you know, I really cherish and, you know, I don't want to neglect. Great answer. Yeah. Number four, bucket list place to travel. Place in the world you have been to that you'd mm-hmm. recommend the listeners add to their bucket list. You know, I recommend Hong Kong only because recently going there, it'll teach you if you're about business and it'll teach you to really, really be about your business because. They don't play around. Everything's quick there. Like the turnaround needs to be quick. Your aesthetic needs to be like on point. Everything needs to be ready to go right now because they're ready to pull the plug. And as long as you can be responsive and be creative and professional and bring some really cool ideas to the table, you'll do well there. It's a very transactional place. um, So, you know, but it's pretty. So you can take a lot of Instagram pictures and and do that. Um, The other place I would probably recommend is Medellin, Colombia, just to kick it. A lot of people of color. There's no place in the city that's not beautiful. So I would definitely check that out as well. Now that I'm on the gram, it seems like every other weekend or something, someone who I follow is down in Medellin or Colombia. It's or, cheap to get there. Yeah. It's a couple, like maybe $300 round trip. Wow. If you do it uh, in advance. Yeah. So of those two, which one? You know, listen, just work on yourself. Uh, you know, it's not always about business. So go to Medellin. Number five, 50 mile detour restaurant. This is a restaurant you'd be willing to go 50 miles out of your way just to eat at. Because I'm eating less and less meat these days, I would probably go out of my way to eat this this place called Cuba de Aire. It's in um, 
it's like right around like White Oak or um, Burtonsville. It's in Burtonsville. Burtonsville. Yeah, Burtonsville. Yeah, yeah, Burtonsville, yeah, Burtonsville. Right off Old Columbia. Yeah, yeah. That place is a little hidden treasure. They need to open something up here. Sorry, 198. It's off Route 198 right before uh, it splits into Spencerville and Old Columbia. Nice, good Cuban cuisine, like for real. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that place. I like the the shrimp, the camarones de ajia or something like that. Um, so, yeah, that place is dope. And it uh, plays in my Cuban heritage. Reminds me that I am Cuban. Okay. Didn't know that. Yeah, it's it's a long, complicated story. Have you been to Cuba? No, no, I haven't gone. I don't really have any close contact with the family members that are there and the family members that are here. They're like weird and Republican, so I don't really, you know, I don't really rock with them like that. Make sure you go. Yeah, no, I definitely point. will. Now I have some comrades that just came back. Their access to like all types of books that you would never get here is phenomenal. Yeah, and the people there. Yeah, you've been. Yeah. Number six, your number one skill is your number one honed craft thing you worked at the most. Uh, connecting people. Okay. Yeah, just being an ultimate connector, um, understanding the value that someone brings onto the table, and being able to connect them to someone who really could utilize that value space and to help them solve a problem. Last, certainly not least, number seven, your number one talent is your innate proficiency, something that you just had from birth. If uh, schmoozing was a superpower, that would be it. I'm a huge schmoozer. I can, like, sit back, wax poetic. We can kick it. I think that's part of the reason why I created State of Affairs with my partner. I was like, I want a place where I can, like, make money and kick it and talk to people about things that I like to talk about. I like that. Yeah. (laughs) Great way to end it. Yeah, man. All right, you got any social media or any website or any uh, contact info you want to share with the listeners? Yeah, so, you know, right now, um, uh, the Launchpad stuff is, should be, by the time this gets, you know, out there and people start to really see it, uh, it's ready to launch. That's R-E-A-D-Y, the number two, launch.us. Uh, so that you know our international students can know what's really in the U.S. That's the Launchpad, right? Yep, Launchpad.us. You can find me on Instagram at a distinctive taste. That was from my like clothing days. It's crazy. I have a Tumblr called a distinctive taste. You can see my styles and stuff on that. I haven't updated that in years, but it's still out there. Um, and yeah, you can you know find me on Facebook or wherever. Um, Kendrick Jackson. I'm I'm pretty easy to find. Um, all my monikers are the same. Whether it's on Twitter, or Facebook. Twitter's this is Kendrick and um you know I have the same saying all the time you know always uh think global and act local I like it Kendrick thanks so much for coming on hey man thanks for having me I appreciate the time yeah we got to do it again too man yeah like I'd love to do this with someone else too and oh yeah of have course a third person to bounce it off of or bring cool. bring your camera bring yes. a video camera you know what I'm saying I should have brought help the me, camera today help me out with the the YouTube roll did I tell you I was gonna bring the camera today no 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 we'll do it again before the summer's out ladies and gentlemen This has been a great episode of Guestbook Podcast. As you already know, I am the host with the most extraordinary Innkeeper Freddy. If you want to reach me, personal IG, at Innkeeper Freddy. That's F-R-E-D-D-I-E. The podcast is at Guestbook Pod. And the inn where we are sitting and recording at Union in D.C. If you want to shoot me an email, come on the podcast and stay at the end. It's innkeeper at unionindc.com. This has been a great episode. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.
my ultimate goal was and still is to, you know, really leverage what I'm doing to recreate media and how we look at media, um, creating groups of influencers who are authentic, who can have their own media channels like yourself, where it really puts the emphasis on what's real and what's not. Like you can actually physically come to this in and you can literally be on this podcast. This isn't you taking pictures, acting like you have a podcast. So I think that's where we're going right now as far as media being much more authentic and being able to be credible in a way that you can validate. 